1: Interviews Alberto Vizendi, the author of Awake, Arise, or Be Forever Fallen Fall, Awakening, and Rise of a Young Anorexic Male. Of Hungarian origin, author and photographer Alberto Vizendi grew up in Spain, has lived in five countries, and has visited more than 40. He holds a master's degree in conference interpretation, speaks five languages, and has spent more than two decades working for international organizations as a conference interpreter. In 2018, after 20 years of being somebody else's voice, he decided to be his own and embarked on a new journey as a writer and photographer. Alberto's work carries a message of hope for all. That a better life is possible regardless of your situation and that you already have everything you need to live it. It's all there in your mind. He inspires us to be ourselves, to take control of our lives and live a purposeful existence instead of living at the mercy of other people's wishes. However, none of that can ever be achieved until we learn to see our real self and ultimately accept ourselves as we really are and not as others expect us to be. After 20 long years of keeping it secret, Alberto reveals his painful personal experience as a young anorexic male in the hope that this will help others avoid falling into a trap created by their own mind. He also shows us that even in our darkest moments, there shines an inner light that can guide us to happiness. That light within is called life, and it's the only light that can guide us to happiness. But it's a light that can only shine in the present. And Alberto challenges us to live fully that ephemeral moment we call now, in which our entire lives take place. Alberto went from having a carefree, joy-filled life to falling into the depths of intellectual and physical misery where death became his only companion and then rose from his own ashes to become a better person than he ever was before. For 20 years, Alberto rode on a fairly tolerable roller coaster of elation and melancholy. But one day, something went wrong. He flew off his seat and began to plummet into the darkest abyss of his mind on a free fall of anorexic self-destruction. The disorder dragged him into the depths of abject misery until he hit rock bottom. That was the turning point. He had to choose between construction and destruction, between living and dying. Alberto chose to live imminent death brought him back to life and also lifted the veil from his eyes exposing to him his real self he had to accept that the pathetic anorexic living corpse he saw before him was no one but himself not the false attractive image of himself he was imagining through the lens of more than 20 years of unremitting conditioning combined with the much deeper distortion caused by anorexia but his real self at last. Accepting himself as he really is meant the beginning of a new life, the first step in the long journey to rescue the wreck that Albert had become, rehabilitate it into a man, and rise to a new existence of conscious bliss. There's no better time than now to break the spell that binds us to a life of zombie-like aimless roaming, like animated corpses. No better time to tear to pieces the bandage that blindfolds our eyes, preventing us from seeing the paradise we're living in. No better time to start living the life we were meant to live. A life of freedom, of bliss, of self-realization. The magic is in you. Just open your heart and you'll see it. Alberto writes... Here is the interview with Alberto Vezendi.
0: In your own words, who is Alberto Vezendi?
2: Alberto Vezendi is uh, someone who had his life split between two countries in the beginning and two cultures and then uh, many more as time went on. I'm Hungarian, but uh, when I was six, my parents left Hungary and uh, went to live to Spain. That was in 1979. And then I lived for almost 20 years in Spain where I finished my university studies. And then I left the country to go to France, to Paris. And from there, I lived in many places, uh, especially in Brussels, Budapest, then I spent some time in Northern Ireland, and uh, now I'm living in Geneva. So I'm not too uh, attached to any nation or any country particularly. Then my profession, my professional life, is, uh, has been uh, in international organizations as professional conference interpreter. I used to work as a freelance interpreter for the European union and UNESCO and many more employers until 2013. And then I was, uh, engaged by, uh, the UN at Geneva. And that's where I'm working now. Apart from that, my passion in my life is, is, uh, our books, books and writing and, uh, trying to be happy.
0: That sounds really good. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about the importance of detachment and the importance of being yourself. Topics related to your book, Awake, Arise, or Be Forever Fallen. My first warm-up question is, what is life to you?
2: Well, life is all we have. Yeah, that sounds... uh pretty simple, but that's, that's what it is. As you might, uh, read in my book, the whole thing started when I was in my early twenties, I had an eating disorder and then I went through a near death situation. And I think that was life changing. Well, I don't think I know that changed my life. And actually the main change was that I started to appreciate life as a gift. It's very hard to explain what you feel when you when you see your own death so close, suddenly all your problems, all your worries, basically everything disappears. Everything uh, loses importance, and then you realize that there it's the end. There's no more. And if you survive, I mean, if you come back or if you if you're still here, you begin to realize that what really matters in life is is just the essentials, just, uh, being alive. And from there you can get all the happiness you want. So life is a gift. That's all I can say. And another thing that pushed me to write my books was that some people I knew, concretely three person committed suicide in the last, uh, three or four years. These people lived in different countries. They had different ages. They were at different stages of their lives but they had things in common. And uh, the main thing in common was that they all had everything a person can want. They have family, they had uh, money, they were not millionaires, but they had everything they needed. They were uh, appreciated in their communities. So that's when I sort of uh, realized or rather that experience reinforced the knowledge I had that any happiness we might get in life and any value life can have for us, must come from within and not from outside.
0: What a powerful message and so true and one that I can relate to very much. So I love when you say that life is a gift and that's so true again. Um, I'm wondering why so many of us don't realize that. Why do we live driven by the opposite? seeing life as a burden and not embracing this truth that life is a gift. Why do you think that is?
2: I think that comes from a combination of uh, various factors. We all have happiness as a gift that was given to us with life. To me, happiness is something that cannot be separated from life. It's always there. It's, uh, in my books, I speak of a light that cannot be extinguished but it can be covered. And that's what happened to, to, to many people, including myself in the past. We just start doing things out of repetition. We become robots and we forget the beauty of life. And we things begin to lose meaning and our happiness begins to be gradually covered by thick layers of obstacles, which prevent it from realizing. In my books, I try to cover the two main obstacles, in my opinion, which are attachment and anxiety.
0: Oh, yeah. I have questions for you about attachment. That's a big one. You wrote me, when you wrote me, uh, the main subject being detachment and the importance of self-awareness, self-love and being yourself, that really resonated as well. So I have some other questions for later. So um, my follow-up question to the what is life one is, what do you think is the opposite of life?
2: The opposite of life is physically death. That's the end of life. But the, the problem is that many people are not living their lives. They just cruising or floating i don't know which word to use they're just there but they are not experiencing life they just when i say they i have to include myself because it it happened to me in the past and uh, this is something i'm i'm I'm, i have to pay attention to every day of my life not to fall in the same traps again but the thing is that uh, we start doing things and then we start repeating them and everything becomes a routine so The more we do the same things every day, the more they become a habit and the less we think and the less we appreciate the beauty of life. And, uh, you know, it's much easier to uh, learn a habit than to get rid of it. Think about smoking or any other uh, toxic substance that that can be addictive, which mm, basically they are addictive because we think they are. Our body does not need them only our mind because we have created a habit and for us it's difficult to stop doing that. With life is basically the same. People begin working, uh, overworking. They become workaholics and then they forget why they started in the first place. Most people, when they begin to work when they are young, they think about something they will do with the fruit of that work, like being happy, doing things, and then. They start to work so much, then they forget the goal and work becomes something that's done, that is done for its own sake. And then time goes by and then we are too old to enjoy life. So that's basically what I see around me.
0: And that's true. I love the way you you talk about examining our habits because it's easy not to do that. And as you call it, fall into the trap of just doing things automatically without any revision. So that's so true. So my next uh, warm up question is, what is the meaning of freedom to you?
2: To me, freedom is being able to, uh, to do, I mean, to choose what you want to do all the time without hurting anybody else or without interfering with the right, other people have to be happy, which is a very large definition of a very wide definition of, of freedom. I know, but um, freedom has always been the main goal of my life, and I think this this has to do in a way with uh, my own personality. I have always been like a maverick. I always love to be alone. I enjoyed. Um, Doing things on my own, and I always had trouble adapting to what other people expected from me. That until my early 20s, which is exactly when my eating disorder started. I will talk about that later. Now I think um you can be free even if you accept to uh share your life with other people, have children, have a family, have a job. You don't have to go live in the mountains like a hermit, not talk to anyone, have nothing. You see, freedom has to be inside. In fact, I think most people that like, like, like go away from society, not because they want to, but because because they force themselves to do so because they think they've heard that's good. They are not free. They become slaves of their own obsession. So freedom is something that can be experienced every time and everywhere. It's inside of your mind. Many people who think are going free, actually they are not. They are slaves of, of, uh, customs, society, their environment, their work, uh, their own mind basically. And there are people who are in prison who are actually free because their mind is free. I think it was Nelson Mandela who said that you cannot jail a free man.
0: That is, um, yeah, uh, you said it all. (laughs) Freedom is within. Yes, 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 a thousand times to that. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need?
2: I'm convinced that what the world needs is that every individual in the world gains the ability to think. I mean, to think freely, to realize what they're doing. I think most of the atrocities that are committed in the world, and unfortunately I'm exposed and uh, indirectly to many of them, because being an interpreter, I have to interpret about situations which are really harrowing. I mean, this horrible stuff going out there, going on out there. And the thing is that, uh, all the people who are doing that, those bad things, if they had the time to think, if they had the time to experience love, and if they had been loved, they wouldn't be doing all those things. Mm, this is something I, I cover in one of my books. We are basically, uh, educated to not think, to stop thinking, to accept everything as if it was true, yeah, without thinking, and uh, act as we are told. Because actually thinking is the most dangerous uh, thing for any power, any kind of established power. You see, I'm not saying that all power is bad and that uh, uh, there should be anarchy everywhere, that couldn't be possible. But I'm, I am saying that people should think uh, and question authority. You know, sometimes I, I think about what happened in Europe uh, during World War II. Six million people killed by other people who actually, uh, if they had questioned authority, probably they wouldn't have doing, done it.
0: Right.
2: You see what I mean?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. This idea of following rules without questioning them, yeah, it's very dangerous, not just individually, but collectively,
2: right? Yeah. I remember a, a quote about this that I love. I forgot who said it, but it's uh, something like uh, A nation of sheep will beget a government of wolves. Mm. And it's true. Mm.
0: Very much true. The question now is how, how do we uh, begin, right, in this journey, practicing this idea of self-awareness and, and self-knowledge? I really love the way you connected uh, the world's greatest need to individual self-awareness. That's something that's definitely needed. I'm just wondering how can this revolution, in a way, get started?
2: I believe it it must start at school, at school or in any kind of education system, formal or informal. At home, what I mean is that it must start with the children. Children are learning lots of things. They know more than 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 doctors knew two hundred years ago. I mean, the, it's 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 incredible the amount of knowledge they gather. We gather during our lives, but. It's also amazing how little wisdom they gain because it's our education system is based on, on on giving information, not about analyzing, not about uh, learning about the importance of, of thinking, of trying to be yourself, the importance of, of love, the importance of training the mind. People devote hours and hours every day to training their bodies, which is good. I mean, sports are very important. It's very important to keep fit and and I do myself, but very few people, especially children, devote time to their brains, to their mind. And in the end, we are only our mind. I mean, we are, if we live, if we feel, if we have a life, if we uh, are aware of our surroundings, it's because we have a mind and then we need the body. That's true. But the education of the mind is totally forgotten at school. Uh, as far as I know, at least when when I went to school, we, we were not even told what meditation is. The importance of, of uh, uh, unplugging your mind, sitting down. Uh, not thinking presence awareness you know those were concepts that were non-existent in my life and I had to learn them much later in life and had I known them when I was a child I probably would not have that eating disorder that I had in my early 20s so it everything must start with, with children at home at school with education
0: yeah that sounds really great um I wish that this could become reality as soon as possible, the idea of teaching wisdom to children. We have so many people in the world today and adults with this need for self-awareness and self-knowledge. Do you think that shifting perspective and transformation change like the ones that you have been through, that I have been through do you have hope that people will learn from their own experiences?
2: Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure they will. <laughs> you know, we, we, ch- change comes from, uh, I, I like to say that change, real change, comes either from uh, experience uh, or uh, from inspiration, rather, or from desperation. And many people have to get to a state in which they they, they suffer at Traumatic experience, or they are on the verge of even uh, they are desperate, and and uh, that's when they start to change. And the whole point of of my books, of your books, of of many books out there, and many people who are educating others, is for people to think and change before they get to the point when life forces them to change. So yeah, I I I I do hope, uh, and uh, people will change. Otherwise, I wouldn't be writing my books at all.
0: Right. So it is possible to learn from other people's experience, which I have learned, I'm sure you too, so many of us. but And hopefully we will learn profound lessons that will end the suffering so we don't need the experience to learn. Um, Speaking of love, you mentioned the word love earlier. What is love to you? How do you define love?
2: Ah, good question. <laughs> to me, uh, love is something that must come from the inside, and it must come from you. I like to say, and this is something I write about in my book, that it takes one to love. You know, we always think that love is something that imp- requires two people, and I say no, it takes only one to love, because love is is giving, without expecting anything in return like you see that the sun it shines for all and it gives life to all beings on earth without distinction of any kind to the poor to the rich to the good to the evil powerful ugly beautiful so i like to think that love is like that sunshine and uh, possession on the other hand which to me is the opposite of love because to me love is freedom and possession is like a black hole which is all about wanting seeking trying to satisfy our insatiable ego you know and and then love is something uh it's it's, it's magic because you can never run out of it the more you give the more you have you know I, I grew up by the by the ocean once my parents went to Spain and uh, for everyone who, who who has ever been on a beach this this image must be clear it's it's when you dig a hole on the beach in the wet sand close to the to the ocean to the shore it will always fill up with water you see and no matter how many times you bail out the water with your bucket and it will fill up again and the deeper you dig the more water you will get however as soon as you stop digging the walls will begin to crumble into the hole it will fill up with sand pushing out the water so That water to me is is love that comes from an eternal source that will always give you more and regenerate when you give it.
0: I love that. I have to use the same word, love. Um, This idea of giving or caring without conditions. That is the most powerful, I think, experience we can have in this human body. (laughs) My other question what, where, and who is God to
2: you? Wow, fundamental questions today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, those are my warm-up questions. Yeah, to me,
2: to me God, I, I, I'm a believer. And uh, I think for, for each of us, the place we are born in, uh, our family, our milieu, our education, will very much determine the idea we have of God. So I grew up in a, in a Christian, a Catholic, uh, environment, but then I, you know, I, I read the Bible. I quote very often from the new Testament, especially. And, uh, then I come to think, okay, but it's not possible that there is one God for us that wouldn't care for all the rest of humanity. So to me now, God is, is, is an energy is, or. Well, how how can I define God? It's very difficult. But to to me is is the origin of everything. Is the creation, and at the same time, it's since it is the creation. At the same time, it's something which is alive inside of us. To me, it's clear that we are part of God. How can the created being be totally separate and independent from its creator. It's something that's hard to conceive for me. And of course, I have I, questioned myself very often in life about, I mean, how can God exist? How can, with all that evil on earth and, and, and although I don't have a, a good answer, I believe that there's, an, there's a balance in the universe. And uh, since we are humans and we are very, very small, but we have a, a huge ego and we think we know everything, we we try to explain and rationalize everything. But to me, the thing is that, that uh, we are humans on earth, but we are as any other species on earth, lions, tigers, dogs, cats, mice, whatever. And there has to be a, a balance. So people have to die. And uh, why we have evil? Well, because we have freedom. Otherwise, we would be like robots, all doing the same thing. To me, mm, freedom, when you're given freedom, you're given the possibility of, of a choice. And you can choose good or evil and well, that's another big question: what is good and what is evil? You know, ask. Uh, there's a war. Okay, you have nation A fighting nation B. Now, there are five hundred thousand dead from nation A. Well, that's bad news from the for nation A. But those in nation B would say, well, that's great news. You see, it's it's hard, but but it's very difficult to say. Evil is, is not uh, an absolute term, it's very, very relative. So going back to God, I think um God is within us, and uh it's also our point of contact with the whole universe. And I don't want to get too too metaphysical because I don't like to speak about things that I cannot neither that I can neither prove nor nor explain, but from my personal experience, uh when you believe, when you have faith in what you do, uh, things began to to happen. It's like magic. It's like like the universe was helping you. But again, I, I I have no proofs of this, so I I don't even speak about that in my books. But but it does happen. I mean, I can tell you, it's 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 amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> and, I can hear finally, your voice.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and finally, um, if you take a more scientific view you know the big bang and all that stuff you to me scientists have been very very good at explaining the how of everything how things happened but not the why you see yeah there was a big bang and now we have this huge and magnificent order in the universe things move like like a like a clockwork uh, system everything's almost perfect but why there must be something arranging this universe you see so uh so no matter how i i i see the question m- my personal conclusion is that that god is out there you know you you, you may call him or her or whatever that is what you, you give them the name you want but but uh, there's something out there which i call god right.
0: i like that my last question what do you think is the purpose the main purpose of
2: life this might sound like a bit selfish but to me it's it's happiness and uh the reason is that if you if you analyze how we behave we always try to satisfy our own desires right and then we try to explain that and we try to rationalize and then we judge, and then since we have some people who, while satisfying their own desires, help other people, we think they're good. And since some people, while satisfying their own desire, apparently do not help others, we say, okay, that's selfish. But this is a question I, I, I've been analyzing very, very much, and... uh I believe if you take people whom I admire greatly, like uh, uh, Saint Teresa, for example, Mother Teresa, she spent her life helping others. But as she herself said, I think it. She said that when she was given uh, her Nobel Prize, too. She said that that all that for her was the joy of doing, the joy of giving the joy of helping. So actually she was following her own calling. Now, the effect on the world of her following her own desire was very good indeed. But the starting point is that no matter how we see it, we, we, we all try to satisfy our desires. And what I think is that we have to do that in a way that then we are able to share that happiness with others and I put it this way because what I realized in my life is that I could only give happiness to others when I was happy. It's very hard to give something that you don't have. Uh, yeah and uh, I have other examples of people who who sacrificed their own happiness, if I may say so, doing things which they never liked just because they were told that's the way they should behave if they want to be admired or if they want to be good and in the end it was a disaster in the end they were unable to help anyone because they they couldn't give anything from the inside they didn't have the happiness the love to give you see so uh, Again, it's it's a balance. It's a very, very complex balance, and our mind, luckily, is very complex, otherwise life would be very boring, I think.
0: (laughs) True. It makes a lot of sense what you said just now, this idea of the pursuit of our own happiness, because as you mentioned earlier about God, God lives in us. So God, it's in us, and it's trying to be God. (laughs) And happiness is a very good representation, I'd say, a manifestation of God. So let's get more detailed about your book, specific book, Awake, Arise, or Be Forever Fallen. So my first question is, what was the intention and the process of writing
2: your book? The main uh intention I had while writing this book was to share with others my own experience. It took me 20 years to sit down and write this book. And, uh, I've been thinking about it for many, many years, but then when I decided that I, I must do it was about two, three years ago for, for two reasons. First, because of what I said before, that three people I knew quite well, especially one of them, committed suicide in the last three years. And uh, and I think that could have been avoided. And I think if people realized that no matter how bad things might be going, there's always hope because my, my, my book, all right, it's based on an eating disorder, but the whole objective of the book is to give hope to people to readers because there's always a light there's always something better but we must be able to find it so that was the main uh, reason for writing my book and i see you know many people live a life that could be much much better you know my book is not only for people who might be suffering for from an eating disorder actually is for all readers, because it's a message of of hope for everyone, you know, that a better life is possible regardless of our situation, because we, we have everything, we need to live it. And then I explain why in the book, and also in my, in my other book, which is called uh, Looking for Happiness, Look Inside, with a very telling title, because happiness is inside, or there is not. It, well, it takes, I, uh, I explained that in about 140 pages, but but, but, but <laughs> yeah. it, it is like that. Yeah. And uh, the second reason was that uh, now I have children. And um, if I had the chance to read a book like this one, well, there, there might be many others like this. Mine is not unique, but any book of this kind before having that eating disorder that is in my, in my late teens, my life would have been different. If I had had the knowledge that I share in these books, I'm sure that many things would have been different and better in my life. And now my children are, are too young. They are um, five and nine respectively. So the, the, they're too young to understand. And again, I have this, this, permanent relationship with death since I had this experience. So I, I never know whether I re, I'll be here tomorrow morning, you know, or the day after. So I decided to write down everything I know to write this book for them. So one day if I'm not, if I'm not around anymore, they will be able to to read what their father went through. Yeah. So they will not fall in the same traps again.
0: What a great inspiration that is. So, your children can use that as a reference. That's wonderful. Why did you keep the eating disorder as a secret for 20 years?
2: Many reasons. First of all, because i'm, I'm as a, as a person, i I don't share too many things about my feelings. I've been like that for all my life. In, in fact, I have written this book. I shared my experience, but I have not yet shared the same experience orally with anyone. To me, it's, it's very difficult to to speak about my own feelings, to speak about uh, especially hardships. I'm much likely to share with my family, with my children, with people around me, that I'm happy, that I'm feeling swell, that, that life is good than when I have problems. When I have problems, I tend to keep them to myself, Probably I don't want to ever burden other people with, with, uh, you know, people have enough problems in their life. I don't see any point in giving them more <laughs> and knowing that somebody whom I believe they love is having a hard time. So that was one of the reasons. And the other was that I, I never thought this could, uh, be of interest to anyone until I realized that, that it might be, it might be for for people who might use me as a negative example, as a an example of what they shouldn't do. It's like in the Greek tragedy where you had these kings and queens and horrible things happened to them. And uh, they they were always bound by their own fate, their own destiny. And the spectator could learn from that. It was the the catharsis and all this learning from the tragedy of others. Right.
0: Wow. Um, Did anything change? Do you, today, do you share more of your um, deepest feelings, good or not, with your family?
2: Not really. Only with the paper, when I'm writing. (laughs)
0: Yeah. That's a very good start. (laughs) Talk to me about being ourselves. Why it's so challenging for most of us to be authentic
2: from the moment we, we are, we have a mind and we are told things we are, our parents give us an education and then we go to school and then there's the role of the media. And I'm talking about all the influences we're exposed to. We see uh, role models. We see ideals like uh, ideals of how one can be good or or handsome or a hero. And then we forget about the way we are. Oh. And what I see is that most children have this innate uh, ability to be themselves, to behave as they want to behave and not as others want them to behave. But then I guess with uh, education and as they grow up, that gets lost. And this is what, what happened to me until I was 18 or 19. I was really happy. Uh, it's true that I always had like a manic depressive personality. You know, I had these times of, 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 of energy and, uh, uh, no need to sleep almost. And, uh, uh, that alternated with periods of depression and both had no uh, external cause. And then um, then I kind of lost, lost myself, I forgot uh, who I was. I started to emulate others because I started to look for happiness outside. Before that, I was, I'm sure you're familiar with this term, like autotelic, You know, like someone who finds gratification and satisfaction doing what they do, regardless of what's going on outside, just for the sake of doing that. It's like when children uh, draw things, they don't think about anything. They don't think that will give them money or make them famous or people will like it or not. They just sit down and do it. And then probably they, they, they will tear the paper and throw it away. But... Still, when they're doing that, they're enjoying it and they're being happy. They're being themselves. And everything they're doing is unrelated to what people expect from them. And that changed in my late teens. I started to look for happiness outside. I started to look for external validation. I wanted to please others. I wanted to be liked. And I was liked too, but at the expense of my own freedom, I stopped stopped being myself. And uh, soon that became a state of permanent self-denial. And in the process, I got lost. I disappeared. And I think that was the main reason why the disorder started.
0: Do you teach your children to be themselves? Um, Not teach, I guess, you have to guide. (laughs) It's the only thing we can do is to guide others to be themselves. This is something that you engage in, that you're aware of?
2: Sure. Every day I do it. It's, it's difficult because whatever, we, what, whatever we do, we will have an influence on our children, but that's unavoidable. So I'll try, I try to limit my, my own influence and, and let them be themselves. And I also try to reinforce that telling them that the only important thing from them, for them is to be aware that people Will always like them or dislike them, regardless of what they are. What I mean by that is that if you are yourself, some people will like you and some people will dislike you. But at least you're still yourself. Instead of that, if you try to adapt to other people and behave like some people expect you to behave, then other people will not like that. So being real and being honest to yourself is to me the only way to avoid becoming a puppet you know in the hands of everyone around you and this applies to everything in life you know uh, even a, a relationship between two adults I consider that when someone falls in love with another person they they do so as that person is with all their, their problems or their, 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 their pros and cons. And if that person had been different, probably they wouldn't have liked that person in the first place. So to me, that's, that's, uh, another argument for always trying to be yourself. And, uh, and this is very special, but also creative work, like, like writing or the arts require that you you are yourself that you create starting from yourself and not imitating others so it 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 takes it takes being being real to do things which are unique in the world because every one of us is unique until we stop being so because we, we we impose upon us the need to adapt to other people's wishes yeah
0: So true, Roberto. That takes a lot of courage. And I love the idea of being ourselves and also helping others at the same time, kind of merging these two purposes rather than um, just living a selfish life, which would be okay too. We are almost at the end of our conversation. And my last question is about detachment. Talk to me about detachment.
2: As I said before, to me the main source of uh, unhappiness is attachment, which is the opposite of detachment. And uh, that's because attachment is one of the biggest misconceptions about happiness. I mean, we are made believe that we need something or someone in order to be happy. And such a belief makes all happiness contingent upon possessing that thing or person. From our childhood, we've been conditioned by the belief that we need objects, money, people, possessions, titles, you name it, before we can be happy. And uh, the media and the social environment in which we live reinforce that belief day by day. So putting it bluntly, That means that you refuse to be happy unless all your requirements for your happiness are met, which is equivalent to the self denial of happiness because it will never happen. And the main problem with uh, attachment is that attachment comes from a person believing that the source of their happiness is external. So they attach to things which can be. Objects, money, and to people, that is to things out of them, because they believe their happiness comes from there, which is a mistake. And obviously, if you think your happiness comes from an object or a person, you will think that if you lose that object or that person, you will lose your happiness. And it makes you want to possess those objects and those people. And the thing is that with that comes fear, the fear of loss and also anxiety, attachment, jealousy, and you're making your happiness conditional because basically you're saying, okay, I'm happy if I have this object, you have this person and you're making your happiness depend upon other people's wishes or feelings or any twist of fate. The only unconditional happiness His inner happiness is the one you have with him. I discovered this very early in my life, as I said, uh, I'm Hungarian, but my parents left Hungary when I was six. And uh, basically the way it happened, uh, one day my my, my father said uh, to my sisters and myself, okay, uh, we're going on a holiday and uh, we put everything in the car and we left. and. only later did we realize that we were not in the Eastern Bloc in Bulgaria, but we went to Austria. We had crossed to the, to the West. And that's when my father told us that we would not be returning to Hungary in one month, two months, two years, or maybe ever. And I was very young at that time, but I, I realized a, a number of things. First, that one, one's whole life can change overnight. And sometimes we can do, we can try to prevent it, but sometimes it will just happen. And the only choice we have is to adapt to the change. And then the other thing I learned was that since before I had many things, I mean, I had friends, I had my friends, my school, uh, my apartment, my toys, everything. I realized that none of those had ever been mine it was me who thought they were mine, but they did not belong to me. They were just out there. They were independent from me and I lost everything. And yet I was still happy. So my happiness could not have been in any of the things I lost, but only inside of me. Then I, later on in life, I, very often I traveled with nothing, by train, sleeping in trains and, and, uh, I remember that I never lacked anything. You know, maybe going back to God, <laughs> he, he he provided everything. I don't know. But the thing is that later in life, uh, when I had a job and and uh, my daughter was born, we we left when she was 11 months for the west coast of Canada to spend. Uh, I think it was one month or one month and a half in a van with nothing. And that's that helped us uh, realize again or or confirmed that all the objects we had, all the all the attachment, all the things, all that was totally superfluous because the only thing we needed to raise a child was was a child. And uh, later on, we did that very often. We took uh, at that time only my my I mean, my son was not yet born. So uh, with my daughter, our daughter, when she was two years of age, we spent, uh, like 64 nights in a tent in traveling around Florida and she didn't have any toys, but you know, she, she woke up in the morning and, uh, she had the beach, she had the sand, she had, she cells, streams, lakes, everything. She held fish in her little hands. She had everything like God's entire creation was her playground. But she didn't hold on to any of those things because she knew they did not belong to her. So she just left everything, and the next day she had a new world to discover. So she had nothing, but she had everything, and uh, that's that's to me a limited happiness. And the thing is that attachment can also happen, and it does happen, and sometimes it's much worse than than uh, attachment to material things. It does happen to that. Uh, personal level, we attach to people. I said before that to me, love is, is, uh, giving without expecting anything in return. But what we see in the media and what we are told, and even in, in the tales we are told when we are children, tells us that love is based on reciprocity. It's like, like, okay, I, I love you because you love me. Even, uh, I only love you if you love me, you know, it's the, I love you if, which means that your love becomes conditional. And the moment you make your love subordinate to the fulfillment of a number of conditions, it's not love anymore. It's well, you can call it a barter, a contract or anything. So basically saying like, I give you something and you give me something in return. And again, since we have mistaken that person in this case, as it happened before with objects, we have mistaken that person for our happiness, we attach to them. And in the case of people, it takes the form of jealousy, possession, and depriving the other people from their liberty. It's like an uh, is like if the relationship between two people was based on the analysis of its return on investment. I mean, I value my relationship according to the return on the love that I invested in it. If my love is reciprocated, I made a good investment. If it's not, I made the wrong investment. So this is probably the main problem with with attachment, that we make our happiness depend on other people and uh, objects that are external to us. And finally, about love and attachment, which I think it's it's very important, when you mistake a person you love for your happiness, what you really love is not the person, not the independent human being, but the pleasure, the company, the help, the happiness, the good time you obtain from them. In other words, you are you are not in love with the other person, you are just in love with your own enjoyment with your own happiness you see i can give you like like maybe an example is easier to remember say say my, my 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 wife leaves me voluntarily so i can assume that uh, she does that because she will be happier in her new life now how can i how can i react to that i can be sad angry indifferent what i think is that Even if it sounds crazy, being happy would be the only logical reaction. Of course, I'm making things black and white, you know, uh, we have our feelings, things are not that easy, but, but when you are unhappy, when you're sad, when you're left by someone who, who actually has gone because they want to live a better life, they want to be happier, you are sad because they are, they are finally happy. You see, so if you answer, if you ask yourself the question, so why am I sad truly, what is exactly the reason for my sadness? The only honest answer is I am sad because my wife is happy or the person I loved is happy. You see, it it sounds like a contradiction, but that's the way uh, love as it is is portrayed on the media and books and, and in general behaves the true reason why I'm sad is because I pity myself because I have lost what I got from the relationship and regardless of the happiness of the other person and it, it's exactly the person I was supposed to love you see and with attachment uh, to to objects it's the same Be- being rich has nothing to do with the amount of wealth you have your possessions Say you have one car and you're satisfied and you don't crave more. Then the message you, you are sending to your subconscious mind is a message of, of having. Now, say you have, you're a millionaire and you have five, 10, 15 cars. And in spite of that, you, you want another one and you crave that new Ferrari or whatever. Until you have that, the message you will send to your subconscious mind is that you need something, that there's something missing in your life. And you know our subconscious mind uh, behaves, is very basic. For, for, for it, everything is black or white. That's the only way it can behave. So the message it, it gets from the outside world is that this person, in spite of being a millionaire, is poor because there's something missing from his life. There's a very good quote from Henry David Thoreau, is that, uh, a man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to live alone. You see, so, and a last comment on attachment. I said before that in my books, I'm not proposing that people leave everything, leave their families, give away all their possessions and go live in the mountains in a cave, eat roots and, and grass. You know, uh, No, because it's not necessary, because the problem does not lie in what we possess, be it objects, money, whatever. And it does not lie in the people we love or we share our life with. The only problem can exist in our mental relationship to those possessions or people. Objects are just that, objects. They are neither good or bad. They are just there. I mean, they, they, they are nothing. The, the material, they cannot think, they're just there. So it is money is not bad. It's no problem with money. The problem comes with our attachment to those objects, with the thought that those objects are our happiness. And from there comes the unavoidable conclusion that if I lose them, I will be unhappy. And that leads to fear. And fear is incompatible with happiness. Where there is fear, there cannot be happiness. So uh, we can completely change our life by changing the way we relate to what we possess and to the people we live with or we love or whatever kind of relationship you are you are in maybe your 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 wife your husband your 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 partner your children your parents it doesn't matter the thing is try to learn to give without expecting anything in return and this might sound like like uh you know very hard to achieve but actually in the end, and this brings me back to your one of your first questions about freedom, What does what it does in the end is it gives you the freedom to be yourself because your happiness no longer depends upon having that person. You know you're happy regardless of the presence of that person or that object. And that is the only unconditional and lasting happiness that can exist in life there are many more things i could say about that i think it was carlos castaneda who said we don't need more to be thankful for we just need to be more thankful and this applies to 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 everything in life especially your relationship to people and uh, and to things and uh i don't know what else i yeah I mean the the whole the whole book basically or, or or almost the entire book the other one looking for happiness look inside is about attachment and detachment and then the second part about uh, anxiety you know the future anxiety why why we experience anxiety and how we can Overcome that anxiety, so that's why I spoke so much about attachment, <laughs> but but I think it's, it's <laughs> it, it, it was important because this is something i can I can offer to your listeners.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your wisdom. absolutely love the way you keep going back to the inner self, knowing ourselves, the freedom is within and everything starts basically with us or everything is in us, all the answers. And that is something that resonates with me incredibly. So we only have a few minutes and I have lots of questions to ask you still, but I have to choose now which ones to. Let me ask you two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently?
2: Yes, I would. And, uh, and I am, actually. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: I, 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 I told you before that uh, ever since I had this near-death experience, I have had a, a very close relationship with, with death. You know, like, like feeling that death is always around, which has, it's been very positive in my life. It has helped me a lot because death, I mean, being really aware that you can die tomorrow and, and, and and it is so, I mean, now you see these people tend to, for some reason, we, we, most of us, including myself before, we tend to think that we're immortal. Okay. That we will die at 95, 100, who knows now this uh pandemic the coronavirus shocked the world because suddenly it came out of the blue you know it just came out of nothing in the beginning of the year and then it started killing millions of people out there so this is just to reinforce that that no matter what you think you might not wake up tomorrow i like very much uh there's a song by bob dylan well there's a there's a, a part that says uh, time is an ocean, but it ends at the shore. And that's our life. We, we, we see our life like an ocean, but it will inevitably have a shore. And I like to compare that with, with a with a boat sailing in, in the mist, so you don't see, and that's your life. And you, you imagine that the shore is very far away, and one day, the wind blows up, blows out the mist and you see that you're right on the shore and that's the end of your life and then there's no way back. That's a uh, uh, ultima linea rerum as I think it was Horace who said that that's, that's the last line of life. There's nothing or well, there might be something afterwards but it will be different and you don't know. So what I'm doing now is uh, I'm focusing more on what I really like that is being with my children, with my family and writing books. And, uh, I'm devoting less and less time to things that I, I don't see any point in doing. So I'm, I'm really changing my, my everyday life because I feel this pressure. I I admit to it. I am afraid that I will leave too many things unfinished. And, uh, coming back to I, to eventually a life after death. I don't know. As I said, I, I grew up in a Catholic, Christian uh, belief environment. And uh, yeah, I, I believe they, there might be something after life. But the thing is that we shouldn't worry about it now. We should not even think about it now. Because the question whether there's a life after death is unimportant for our goal, which is happiness here and now. What I mean by that is if there is a life after death, great, so be it. And we will all eventually get there anyway. But since, yeah, <laughs> we will sooner or later. <laughs> but since there is nothing you can do about it now, just let it be and don't rush to get there before your time has come. So, what really matters to me is whether there is a life before death. And that's another one of your questions before, why people seem not to live their lives, not to be alive. The important thing is whether there's a life before death. And what I would say is to not sacrifice your present happiness on the altar of a future bliss that is no more than a prospect and concentrate on the real life you're living now your present happiness. And then if there's something afterwards, great, we'll see it.
0: (laughs) I love that too. (laughs) You have a lot of wisdom. Thank you so much. That's uh, that's what I wish to see more in the world every day, every time I talk to people. And I I really appreciate your presence. And um, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects?
2: To be totally honest with you i'm I, I i i love writing and i love uh sharing my my experience but i'm very bad at marketing it <laughs> you so what what i have now is i have a web page which is vezendi. that's v e z e n d i dot com where people can find more information about me my books my pictures i I take pictures too, and uh, they can also buy buy my books from there. Actually, they will not buy them from there because I I I'm, I've been unable to set up the platform and you know technical stuff. So uh, they will be sent to any of the of the large retailers, which means Kobo, Amazon, Google, you name it. You know, and uh, there they can find uh, both the paperback and the ebook. And then I've been, lately I've been recording audiobooks, which are, by the way, they're in Spanish though. And uh, I have chosen the books that, in my opinion, contain the best wisdom that uh, has been left by by generations that came before us. And there are many good books out there, so uh, it will take me a long time to (laughs) cover even a small part of that. But uh, I have uploaded already five or six or seven. I can't remember. And uh, they are there for the taking. They are free because I have been given so many things for free in my life that um, I, I want to, to give back. And uh,
0: right. Yeah. Really wonderful. Thank you so much again, Alberto. And we'll talk soon.
2: Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you, Valeria.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Alberto Vizendi, please visit his website, Vizendi.com. To learn more about this
0: podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.